stand. Hymn number 
are continuing working our way through Matthew 23. And depending on how the morning goes, we might actually get to Matthew 24 this morning. And I know that 70-something weeks ago, when we decided that the next book that we would approach would be the book of Matthew, I know that there was tremendous anticipation on the part of some of you, including some of you on the internet, because you wanted us to teach the book of Matthew so that we could get to Matthew 24. And you've been very patient. I don't know what number message this morning is, but it's somewhere in the mid-70s. We took a year and several months to get to Matthew 24, and this morning we might actually at least touch on it. Next week we'll start to dig into it. So that'll give you something to look forward to next week. We are right in the middle of Matthew 23 at the moment, and Jesus is doling out condemnation against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders in Jerusalem, and he's very, very clear about why he is condemning them. He's very clear about the basis of his condemnation, and it is that despite the fact that they would sit in Moses' seat, despite the fact that they would lead the religious multitudes, they nevertheless were hypocrites because they would say the things that Moses said, but they would not do the things that Moses did. And then on top of that, they rejected the Messiah when he appeared. And they had a lot of reasons to reject him, not the least of which was that if he is who he says he is, then they are out of a job. If he is who he says he is, then in fact the new covenant that Tom read for us this morning is going into effect and the old covenant is about to be done away with. And that old covenant system of temple worship and priestly leadership and the slaughtering of animals and the constant flowing of blood, all of that is going to be done away with in favor of the substance that cast that shadow. All those things in the Old Testament were foreshadowing the Christ to come. And if Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Christ to come, then that old covenant practice is about to be done away with. And so they are, quite literally, out of a gig. And they are upset over this because they want to maintain their leadership role. Remember that not only have they become politically and culturally influential through the job of leadership in the temple, but they've also become quite wealthy as a result. And so Jesus is condemning them for their hypocrisy and for their rejection of him. And he went so far, we saw it last week, he went so far in his condemnation of them that he said, you will compass land and sea to make one proselyte, one convert, You will travel great distances to convert one person, and when you have converted them, you've made them twice the child of hell that you are. I mean, he had no problem telling them right to their face exactly what their problem was. He said, not only do you not enter the kingdom, but you resist others who would try to enter the kingdom. Because they simply would not allow that he could possibly be the Christ. 
Now, this is also really fascinating from a theological standpoint. I don't know how people can read the Bible and not see the sovereignty of God just leaping out of every page because these Pharisees are being blamed and condemned for being how they are and doing what they're doing, and yet, in the divine sovereign providence of God, they had to do this. They had to be exactly like this, because on this particular year, on this particular Passover, in this particular city, at this particular juncture in human history, Jesus had to end up on a cross outside the city walls at Golgotha, and it had to happen. Therefore, there had to be people who hated him enough to kill him. And Jesus is condemning them for the very hatred that God is sovereignly using in order to accomplish the salvation of all his people. We've seen examples of this several times in the Bible where God would use the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Christianity, and he would use them in order to accomplish his divine plan, and then he would condemn people for being exactly how they are, despite the fact that he utilized how they are in order to accomplish what he determined to be done. Here, you want to see it in print? Keep your finger there in Matthew 23 and turn over to the book of Acts for a moment. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Let's start at verse 24. This is Peter talking. He is condemning the leaders, the council. Verse 23, and when they had been released... When Peter and John had been released, they went to their own companions and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and they said, O Lord, it is thou that didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, why do the Gentiles rage? And why do the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. He's quoting there from the Psalms, Psalm 2, in fact, but then he applies it to the situation that they're in right at that moment. And in verse 27, he says, for truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint. There were gathered together both Herod and Pontius Pilate. That's the Jewish leader and the Gentile leader. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And for what purpose were they all gathered together? Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So the Jews, the Gentiles, were all gathered together in Jerusalem against Jesus because that's what God foreordained to be done. And despite that reality, in Matthew 23, 
Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the leaders in Jerusalem for doing the very thing God foreordained to be done. Does your theology allow for that? Does your thinking about God allow for that? Because it's what the Bible does teach. It's what the Bible does say. And by the way, I like the fact that God is this sovereign because it takes a God this sovereign to save somebody like me. It takes somebody who can override my circumstances in life in order to achieve his predestined plan, which is to save someone like me. So if you're bothered by the fact that God can use sinful people in order to accomplish his divine plan and then judge those very same people, then you still don't know the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is so sovereign that he can do whatever he wants with people. And the truth of the matter is all people deserved punishment and condemnation. And because he can divinely do what he wants to do, he also divinely decided to save some people who simply did not deserve saving. There's two sides to that coin of God's absolute sovereignty. And if you think that human beings are just intrinsically good and intrinsically valuable and that everybody is born and they pop out of the womb just really good and righteous and holy, well, then you're going to think, pop out of the womb. Is that the way I did that one? But you're, you're going to think that it is unfair of God to hold people responsible for simply being the way they are. But the Bible says time and time again that if God leaves you in the state that you naturally are, then you're nothing but condemnable. He has no option but judge you because that's what you're like. But he's so sovereign that he can use the sinful, depraved activity of sinful, depraved people in order to accomplish his grander, greater will. And he can save some people who don't deserve saving because they're just as sinful and just depraved as the ones that he's condemning. But by his unbelievable and magnificent grace has decided that some people are going to stand in his presence for all eternity as trophies of grace so that he can forever say, look what I did. Look what my son accomplished. Look what I secured by my spirit. I saved these people who are just as bad as the ones I condemned. Make you feel good about your salvation? It should. It should make you think, oh, thank God. It shouldn't make you think, oh, I'm good. If that's what you came away with, you still didn't hear me. Instead, what you should come away with is, I am so saved by a righteous, holy, and gracious God that he has to get all the glory. He has to get all the praise and all the honor because he's the one who did it completely from beginning to end, from Alpha to Omega. He is the Savior all by himself. And it's demonstrated here. When God could do what he ordained to be done, and then Jesus could condemn the very people who are doing what God ordained to be done. And notice that God did not have to change the evil, sinful people. He simply had to let them go ahead and be themselves. And what do they do? Hate Jesus. What happens to any human being that God just leaves to themselves? Well, they end up making a God of themselves. They end up worshiping themselves. 
They end up thinking that they are the center of the universe. And they think that even if there might be a God, then he will probably save them on the basis of the fact that they are pretty good people. But that's simply not the way that the Bible speaks at all. If God leaves you to yourself, you will end up like these Pharisees. You will hate God. You will hate Christ. And you will love your position. You will love money. You will love honor. You will think that you are important. And you will reject Christ in the process. So here's a big question. Is Jesus right in condemning them? Yes, of course God is absolutely righteous. Jesus is absolutely correct in condemning these Pharisees because they are absolutely guilty. And guilty not just of hating Jesus, but of killing the prince of life and preferring a murderer. So they're really, really, really guilty. And God used them to save Thaddeus. That's a really sovereign God. That's a God who actually is in charge. So let's read from Matthew 23. Let's start at verse 13, and then we'll run up to where we were last week. Last week, I think we got as far as verse 24. So let's start at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple He is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, you say, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
We talked about all those verses last week in detail. That takes us to verse 25 as Jesus continues his woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. In a moment, he's going to clarify what that means by creating a parallel to whitewashed graves. But what you need to understand here is that there were so many cleanliness traditions within Judaism. You might recall that Jesus and his disciples one day stopped and picked some corn and ate it with unwashed hands. And the Pharisees caught them and said, you didn't wash before you ate because they had all of these cleanliness rules that you had to keep. Ceremonial cleansing before you could go into the temple, before you could bring an offering, before you could participate in temple worship. You had to be ceremonially clean. And in the law of Moses, there are a whole lot of ways you could become ceremonially unclean. If you touched an animal that had died, if you touched a corpse of a human being, you were unclean. If you uh, hadn't done all the ritual washings, you were unclean. If you had a sore, if you had any kind of an oozing sore or anything, you're unclean. There were just so many ways that you could become unclean. And so the Pharisees took it all the way to they wouldn't even eat food until they had washed themselves and then wash the bowls and the pottery that they'd cook out of or eat out of. Everything had to be clean, 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 clean. And they were so determined and so proud of their cleanliness rules. And Jesus said, you take the time to wash the bowl and you don't see that inside it is all this uncleanness. Now, he's not talking about bowls. He's talking about them. He's just simply creating an analogy, a comparison, in order to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. So what is he really saying about them? He says, You look good on the outside. Remember, these are the men that love to be seen in the temple. They love to be seen making long prayers. They've widened their phylacteries and they lengthened the embroidery on their clothing so that everybody would see how holy they are and how often they pray and how much they pray and how they have bound the word of God on their arm and on their forehead. They look so good. They look so righteous. And Jesus says, because he knows that they have become rich off the back of these people while they've been busy robbing widows' houses. He says, on the inside, even though you look good on the outside, on the inside, you're full of robbery and worse, self-indulgence. Whatever you want, you get. Whatever you choose, you do. Whatever you think is important in my religion, you do. And so you're leading people astray and you're making them children of hell and you're keeping them out of the kingdom and you're doing all that because you like you so much. That ought to be a lesson to all of us. How often have we heard Jesus talk about the necessity of humility? How often do you read in the Bible things like pride goes before a fall? And great is going to be that fall. The Bible over and over again says that when you recognize who God is, when you recognize who Christ is, and you recognize them in comparison to who you are, that ought to drive you to your knees. That ought to drive you to genuine humility. It should not make you proud. It should not make you arrogant. 
and yet that's exactly what happened with the Pharisees. They were so busy looking good and putting on a show that they actually started believing their own self-advertising and became full of themselves and their pride and their self-indulgence. In verse 26, he says, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. In other words, he's saying it doesn't matter how good you might look on the outside. It's what's going on inside that matters. Okay, so now big theological question. Jesus has just said to them, you need to be clean from the inside. How do you do that? Because yes, you can clean your body. Yes, you can wash your clothes. Yes, you can go through the religious rigmarole and... Yes, you can walk through the practices of Moses, but how do you actually make yourself clean inside? Well, this is where John 3 is so important, and Jesus talking to Nicodemus, who was a leader in Israel, and saying, you have to be born again. The word again is anothen. We've talked about that. It's a word that means you have to be born from above. To genuinely be clean on the inside God has to do the cleaning because you can't scrub yourself hard enough to make yourself clean outside and in. Anybody have any um, sinful thoughts yet today? Anybody? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, you who didn't raise your hands are just so good. I saw a couple of... Yeah, okay, a little. Okay. Well, the fact is, no matter how much we attempt to clean ourselves up and look good on the outside, our problem is not an external problem. Our problem is an internal problem. Our problem is that our hearts are darkened and our minds are corrupt. And as a consequence, no matter how good we might look on the outside, inside we have to be cleaned, we have to be cleansed, we have to be changed. And that's why the language, again, throughout the Bible is that language of God taking out your stony heart and giving you a heart of flesh. Or that language of you have to be born again. Or the language of regeneration. You have to be made spiritually alive. Or the language of, uh, of God having to deposit his spirit within you so that his spirit becomes the governor on your behavior, which changes your behavior and your thinking and enlightens you, changes you from within. You can't do that. So when he says to the Pharisees, your problem is that you look good on the outside, but inside you're filthy. When he says you blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside can become clean also, changes the dynamic. They think if they look good on the outside, that makes them good on the inside. He says you have to clean the inside and that will take care of the outside. And that's something they simply can't do. The only way they can accomplish that is to come to him. Have faith in him. Do the one thing they can't do. Remember they asked him once, what do we have to do that we can work the works of God? And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's the one work they couldn't do. If he had said any of the 613 rules of the Mosaic law, they would go, yeah, okay, I can do that. Pick one, anyone. You know, don't mix fabrics. Okay, got it. Even something more, 
personal or difficult. Okay, don't kill or don't commit adultery or don't lie. Okay, maybe I can get that down. But instead, he said, here's one you can't do, and this is the work that God requires. Believe in me. They couldn't do that. So here he has told them the truth. The problem is that you are filthy within, and you have to be cleansed within. Only then will the outside truly be clean. But he went further. He's not letting up on them. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, I like the King James, whitewashed sepulchers. It's just not a word we use much anymore. So they're in the Middle East, very rocky. And so oftentimes when a person died, rather than bury them, they would entomb them. Like Jesus, you remember, he was put into a tomb, which is oftentimes a cave, sometimes privately owned, sometimes publicly owned, where they would dump a whole lot of bodies, because you couldn't dig very far down. Has anybody here ever been to New Orleans? Okay, did you see the graveyards down there? Aren't they interesting? Because all the graves are above ground. Because if you dig six feet, you hit water. And so all the graves are up above the ground. Well, that's the idea in Jerusalem at this time in the Middle East is that most of the people were buried in caves or in dens or in tombs of some kind, and that is a sepulcher. And so the tradition among the Jews was if you buried your loved one in a sepulcher, especially if you're somebody like Joseph of Arimathea and you have a private tomb where nobody's been laid yet, it's being held for you personally and privately, Well, then you don't want to put your body into a filthy place, so you would have it cleaned. And then on the outside, you would have it whitewashed, painted. And so when people went by, it looked nice. Again, the the graveyards down in, in Louisiana, were they attractive? Really interesting, very white and a lot of flowers, architecture around them and everything else. Really fascinating to look at. And that's what Jesus is saying. No matter how clean and good it might look on the outside, what's it full of? Dead men's bones and all uncleanness. No matter how good you make the graveyard look, it's still full of decaying dead people. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Remember a moment ago, I told you that one of the ways that you could become ceremonially, that one of the ways, I have to slow down, I tripped on that word, that one of the ways that you could become ceremonially unclean was to touch a dead body because dead bodies are intrinsically unclean. So he says, this is what you're like. You're like a grave. Isn't that nice of Jesus? Seeker-sensitive Jesus just out there making friends. Here's what you're like. You're like a grave. You're like a whitewashed grave. On the outside, Looks clean, looks good. People walking by have a look at it. They're not going to be offended by it because it's been kept up pretty well, so okay. But what's really going on in a grave? Inside, he says, is dead men's bones and all decay and uncleanness. By the way, I think that's why 
the euphemism of death and life is used so often to describe the human condition. That we are born, according to Ephesians, Ephesians 2, Paul writing says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That means much more than just incapable because of our trespasses and sins. It also means that we are decaying, corrupt, unclean because of our trespasses and sins. And that's the condition we're in when Christ finds us. And we can't help ourselves. We can't clean ourselves. We can't improve ourselves because we are, after all, dead. And dead people just can't do much. The list of things they can do is very slim. The most they can do is become worm food and decay and rot. And that's the best they've got. And when Jesus, pardon me? And they stink pretty good too, don't they? Oh, yeah. So is it any surprise that Jesus and the gospel writers would use that equation to describe our spiritual condition? Because he knows, he knows, he understands what death is. He understands what decay and uncleanness is. And yet that's the phrase he used to say, and that's what you're like if you're unsaved. You got nothing. So you are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they appear beautiful. Inside, they're full of dead men's bones and full of all uncleanness. And then, just so that they understand who he's pointing the analogy at, verse 28, even so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay, now this is a really tough one because these are the law keepers. These are the leaders in Jerusalem. These are the ones that put on that they are actually keeping the law. These are the ones who think they are justified by their law keeping. And Jesus just said, you're full of lawlessness. And because sin is the breaking of God's law, you are sinful men, depraved men, children of hell, running around making proselytes that you can take to hell with you. You keep them out of the kingdom and you walk around looking good. By the way, did Jesus just say that there is a form of religion that can look good on the outside, but on the inside it takes people to hell? That's a tough one, isn't it? Because in the secular world we live in, we're not supposed to say stuff like that. In the secular world we live in, we're supposed to say, whatever you believe is good for you. Did you see one of the uh, Islamic leaders this week join the chorus of ecumenism and said that Christians, if they believe in God, are believing in Allah? To which I say, no, we're not. No, Allah is not Yahweh. They're very, very different. Yahweh has a son. Allah doesn't. The son of God, the son of Yahweh, says things like, someone strikes you on the left cheek, you give them your right cheek also. Did I get that backwards? If they strike you on your right cheek, give them your left cheek also. The followers of Allah say, Find Christians and Jews and cut their head off. That's slightly different. They are not one and the same. 
there is a religion on the planet, the fastest growing religion on the planet, that will indeed compass land and sea to make a proselyte and even threaten your own life and threaten to chop your head off to get you to proselytize. But do they actually make you saved? No, because Islam doesn't have a savior. The theology of Islam is that you will be saved on the basis of your works. And the religion of Yahweh says you can't be saved by your works. These are two completely different things. So anyway, I said all that because Jesus was very clear that there can be a religion that looks good on the outside, that is attractive to humans, that is attractive to other men, and that religion can also be an expressway to hell, according to Jesus. So you got to be wise. you got to be discerning. you got to pay attention to what people are teaching. What are they saying? What are they leading you to? Are they aggrandizing men? Are they lifting you up? Are they making you feel good about you? Or are they leading you to the only Savior? And that's the big difference. Any religion that is not raising up Christ and saying that the only hope you have of reconciliation with God is through Christ, if they're not telling you that, they're leading you to hell. And I don't care if they go under the guise of Islam or Christianity or Buddhism or Baha'ism. I don't care what religion it is. If they're not telling you that Christ is the answer, Christ is the solution to your sin problem, and he is the only way, truth, and life, if they're not telling you that, then they're proselytizing you to their hellish religion, and you've got to know the difference. Woe to you, verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of the fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Okay, now here's what you need to know. We've been studying on Wednesday nights. We've been beginning to study the minor prophets. But through the whole of the Old Testament, when God would send prophets to Israel to warn them, Israel would reject them and kill them. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of God. Jesus is standing on the planet as the great and final prophet. And they're going to kill him. And as a demonstration of their hypocrisy, he points out that not only do they paint the tombs and the, and the monuments to the prophets so that they look nice, but they also walk around saying, if we had been there when Isaiah was around, we wouldn't have killed Isaiah. We would not have participated in that. Sure, our forefathers did that, but we wouldn't have done that. No, you're going to kill the prince of life instead. So, yay for you. Listen to the language. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets, and consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. 
Very clever how he uses their language against them. They say, our fathers killed the prophets. If we had been there, we wouldn't have done that, but our fathers did it. And he says, well, then you've just testified that you are the sons of murderers. You are the sons of those who killed the prophets. So fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents. You brood of vipers. You den of poisonous snakes is what he called them. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? Just as clear a condemnation as you're going to see anywhere in the Bible. Not only are you snakes. Now, I think it's no uh, accident that all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the first time that Satan appears in human history, he appears as a snake, as a serpent. And Jesus, speaking to the very people who he said are sons of the devil, calls them a den of serpents, a den of poisonous snakes. So fill up the measure of your fathers. Fill up the guilt of your fathers. And they're going to. They're going to kill Jesus, the final prophet, bringing the guilt of national Israel and the leaders of Israel to a culmination that he sent them prophets, sent them prophets, sent them prophets, finally sent his son. We saw a couple of parables in the last few weeks where Jesus created that exact dynamic, where he turned his vineyard over to vine dressers who would take care of it. But whenever he would send his servants, they would kill the servants. And finally, the owner of the vineyard sends his son and they say let's kill the son so that we can have this for ourselves he's telling them over and over again you're going to kill me and they despite him saying that end up killing him you would think at some point they would go hey he's trying to tell us something he keeps telling us that we're going to kill him let's let's not do that And instead, because of God's absolute sovereignty, like we read in Acts 4, they are going to do exactly what their wicked hearts desire to do, and they are going to kill him. And in so doing, they're going to fill up the measure of the guilt of the fathers, the leaders in Israel. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? The word hell there is Gehenna. We've talked about it a bit before. Jesus refers to it as a place where the fire is never quenched, where the worm never sleeps. The word Gehenna actually is the the Valley of Hinnom. It was a particular place, actually. It was a physical place when Jesus was on the planet that he could point to and use as a demonstration of what God's judgment was going to be like. It was the dumping ground. It was the place where people took all of their trash, and because they didn't have central plumbing, this is the place where they would take all their bodily refuse. Did I circumlocute that well? Yeah. And they would carry it down there to Gehenna, to the Valley of Hinnom, and they would dump all their refuse there because it was always on fire. Methane burns. And with all the The garbage that was there, animal carcasses that was there, with all the refuse that was there, with all that stuff, the place, of course, attracted maggots. And so Jesus pointed at that, the place where the fire is never quenched, where the worm never sleeps. 
And he said, that's what your judgment's going to be like. Because it's really difficult for us to imagine. We humans, it's really difficult to dredge up, to really genuinely imagine what God's condemnation is going to be like. So Jesus would use language like outer darkness. And then he explains what the reaction will be to outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's going to be a great deal of terror in the outer darkness, wherever that is and whatever that is. You get to the book of Revelation, and you find the lake of fire. And once the false prophet and Satan and and the Antichrist are all thrown into the lake of fire, and then all those who took the mark of the beast If you don't know what that is, we'll talk about it in the weeks to come. But all those who follow after the Antichrist and the false prophet are all thrown into the lake of fire. And then you read, and the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. Okay, this is just the Bible authors, Jesus, the apostles, trying to tell us what the judgment of God is going to be like. And obviously it's going to be awful. And from the language, it's also going to be eternal. And from the language, it's going to be horrific. And Jesus just said to these Pharisees who are responsible for the death, their fathers are responsible for the death of all the prophets that have ever been sent to Israel, and they are going to be responsible for the death of Jesus himself. He looks at them and says, how are you going to escape that? There's no way out for you. That should have terrorized them. So what is their response? Well, we'll just kill you. Since you told us that, and we don't like that, we'll just get rid of you. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That happened, by the way. Paul writes about it and says, God gave to the church gifts to men, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And among those New Testament prophets, people like Paul, people like the apostles that were sent out, they all died martyrs' deaths. And they were persecuted from city to city by the Jewish leaders, exactly like Jesus said. But he said, the reason you're doing that is because you are filling up the guilt of your fathers. So that, verse 35, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. Wow. You are so guilty. That when you kill me and then kill those that I send, you're going to be guilty of all the bloodshed that has happened in Israel since there were prophets to begin with. And then he reaches all the way back to righteous Abel. Who is that? First two children of Adam and Eve. And you know that Abel's blood was shed by his brother. Cain killed Abel. Because they both brought a sacrifice to God, but Abel's sacrifice 
had blood in it. It prefigured Christ. Whereas Cain brought him the works of his hands. God took Abel's offering, had respect for it, rejected Cain's offering, and then we read in the King James, and Cain was wroth. And he killed his brother for it. And Jesus reaches back to that and says, that was the first righteous blood shed on the planet. I'm going to reach all the way back to that to start your guilt. By the way, notice too that Jesus just confirmed the book of Genesis account of the first people on the planet. That's interesting. Because he would know. I have always considered Jesus my subject matter expert where the Bible is concerned. The one who died and got up again has sufficient authority to tell us whether the Bible is true. And he just told us that the Cain and Abel story, which reaches back to Adam and Eve in the garden, he just said that's true, that's valid. It's so valid, in fact, so physical, so genuine, so actual, that I'm going to hold you guilty for the blood that was actually poured out way back there at Eden. So that gives me a great deal of confidence when I'm reading in the Old Testament and I read things like God made man in his image. And then the cynics and the critics come along and they get themselves a YouTube channel and they fire up their, their cameras and they say, uh, no, that's not true. That never happened. Um, that's just an allegory. That's not history. There's no evidence of Eden. There's no, okay, well, the only one who ever came to the planet and was actually righteous and good and died and then raised again three days later, the only one who ever sailed up off the planet out into the blue and is currently sitting at the right hand of God, he said that this all actually happened. So let's see. Do I go with Jesus and his testimony of the actual history of the planet, or do I go with a 24-year-old cynic on YouTube? Let me think for a moment. i got to go with Jesus. And he validated Abel. Now, the next thing you need to know is the way that the Hebrew Old Testament was bound in the original what's called Tanakh. Those three consonant letters come from the three Hebrew words that mean the writing of Moses, the law, the Torah, and then the prophecy books, and then the history books. And the way that the Old Testament was bound, what we call Second Chronicles was the last book in that binding of the Old Testament. And the four books that we call First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, were actually four chronicles of the kings that were all bound together. And they were at the end of the Hebrew scripture, and the last prophet that you find at the end of the book of Second Chronicles, the last prophet that Israel killed, is Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you can read was murdered between the temple and the altar. In fact, if you want to read about it, 2 Chronicles 24, 21. Somebody look that up. 2 Chronicles 24, 21. Somebody else look up Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, 1, 1, the very beginning of the book. Here is Jesus not only validating the first book in the Old Testament, but then he validates the last book in the Old Testament. And he mentions the first bloodshed in the Old Testament. 
And then he mentions the last bloodshed in the Old Testament. And then says they're guilty of everything in between. Is somebody in 2 Chronicles 24, 21? Yes. Read it for us. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. In the court of the house of the Lord, between the temple and the altar. Uh, Go back and read two verses before that. Let's make sure that we know who we're talking about, because it's going to name Zechariah by name there. Yes. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress against the commandments of the Lord, so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Okay, so Jesus says that's a reality that actually happened. Now you may notice that in the Chronicles, he's referred to as the son of Jehoiada. Jesus mentions Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who's got... Zechariah 1.1. Read it for us. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. That is Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And what you need to know, again, is the way that the Hebrews listed chronologies, family chronologies and genealogies. If you were a grandfather, a great-grandfather, you were still referred to as a father. I am the son of my great-grandfather by Jewish reckoning. And because they come from the line of priests, he is both the son of Jehoiada, he is also the son of Berechiah because both of them are in his family lineage. So there's no contradiction to be had there, but notice what Jesus just did. He reached all the way back to Garden of Eden and the bloodshed of Abel, and then went to the last of the prophets that are killed in the book of 2 Chronicles, the last of the history books in the binding of the Jewish scripture, and he says this about them. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, and truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. How guilty does that make them? Can you imagine Jesus himself, the Lord of life, saying, I'm going to take all the Old Testament bloodshed of all the righteous people that Israel killed, and I'm going to hold it to your account so that you fill up the guilt of your fathers. He was holding these religious leaders very, 
very, very guilty. And then he said, truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now, this word generation is going to come up several times, and it's going to be important as we work our way through the eschatological stuff. I've told you before, it is the word genea. We talked about it when it showed up earlier in the book of Matthew, and the meaning of the word doesn't necessarily have to mean people who are alive together at any one period of time. Like uh, Tom and I are of an age where we are of a different generation than April. And then there's another generation. Where'd the baby go? There was a baby here. Anyway, there's like three generations represented in the room. You understand what I'm saying? But that's not the way Jesus usually uses the word Ganea, because Ganea also has the meaning of people of a common heritage, a common descent. Here I'll show you the way the word works. G-E-N-E-A in English letters, that's the Greek word, Ganea, that is translated generation. But when we use the word to talk about people of a common descent, we put logia on the end of it, which means words about. So words about the Ganea becomes genealogy. We didn't even change the spelling. G-E-N-E-A-L-O-G-Y is genealogy, which is talking about people of a common descent. And that is the root of this word Ganea. So when Jesus says all these things are going to fall upon this generation, he may be saying, you who are alive right here, right now, but notice that He said, you are responsible for the blood of Abel and Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Well, they, they weren't there when that happened. The people he was talking to that were alive at that moment weren't the people he was, that actually did that. What he's saying is, you, the leaders in Israel, you, I've been talking about you and your fathers, you are a particular genealogical group, and the guilt is going to be you and your fathers and your Ganea. You understand that? Because it's going to become important later when Jesus says, this Ganea will not pass until all these things have been completed. You're going to have to say, well, does that mean that everything Jesus predicts in Matthew 24 had to come to its fulfillment before the people who were alive with Christ died? That becomes a big difficulty. But the difficulty is taken away when you look at the word Ganea and understand that he's talking about people groups, people of common heritage and descent, not necessarily people who are alive at the exact same moment. You got that? That same word, by the way, is used when we read at the beginning of Matthew that this is the genealogy of Jesus. It's the same Ganea. These are the people groups who led to Jesus. So understand the way the word is used. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this Ganea, this people group, this genealogy, and that's going to become more more apparent in just a moment. Because verse 37 is another one of those controversial verses. It's one of those verses that our Arminian friends love to go to. They love to point to and say, see, right here Jesus talks about the fact that he wanted to do something, but he couldn't because the people weren't willing. So that proves that the will of humans overrides the desire of Jesus. See, free will. Get the argument? 
Jesus laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, who is he talking to when he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem? Is he talking to the city? Is he talking to the walls, the buildings? Oh, you buildings, you brick and mortar. How often I wanted to gather your little bricks together, but I... No, he's talking to the leaders in Jerusalem. The, the context hasn't changed. He's talking to the leaders in Jerusalem. And so he calls them, O oh, Jerusalem. Have you ever seen the movie, The Madness of King George? It's a great movie. If you get a chance, see The Madness of Wasn't it good, George? Yeah. Oh, well, your name is George. Of course you went and saw it. <laughs> it's a movie about George III. This is absolutely true, by the way. A little movie trivia for you this morning. You didn't know you were going to get this when you walked in. But um, the play was originally called The Madness of George III. And when it was made into a movie, the, the movie company said, we can't keep that title because it has the Roman numeral three in it. And if the movie is called The Madness of King George III, they were afraid people wouldn't go see it because they hadn't seen one and two. <laughs> absolutely true. Anyway, so they called it The Madness of King George. Not only is it a great movie, but I actually went and bought the book of the script. Now, the only reason that I bring this up is because the king, George III, a couple times in the movie refers to himself as England. See what I'm saying? He is the king of England. He is the representative of England. And so he refers to himself as England. And he says, come on, England. Do it, England. Because he's England. Okay, same thing happening here. When he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's talking to the leaders in Jerusalem. He's talking to the very same ones who he earlier said, not only do you not go into the kingdom, but you prevent those that would go in. You stop others from going in. Now, one of the most frequent promises from all of the prophets of Israel, all the prophets that God has sent to Israel, all the prophets that they killed, the one central message that they all agree on is that even though God is punishing Israel for their sin, nevertheless, God promises repeatedly that he is going to regather Israel. Right? Those of you who have been with us on Wednesday nights, you've seen this over and over again. The consistent promise that God is going to gather Israel. The nomenclature, the name that is used most often for all the members of Israel is the children of Israel. How often have we seen that term? The children of Israel. Because God, their father, refers to them as children. So knowing that, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. Now we know exactly who he's talking about. He just got done saying, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the fire of hell? Because you're filling up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Verse 30, you say if you had been there in the days of your fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So he's talking to the people who are guilty of the death of the prophets. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often... I would have or wanted to gather your children together. That's the message of the prophets. The prophets universally say God is going to punish Israel and then he's going to gather you. He's going to gather the children of Israel. All 12 tribes bring you back to this land. 
And so Jesus confirms that. This is what the prophets have always said, how often I would have gathered your children together. But the same way that he said, you resist, you make proselytes that are the children of hell just like you are. He then holds them similarly guilty and says, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. See that language? It's the same thing he has said before. He said to them repeatedly, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're resisting. You don't go in. You don't let others go in. He's saying the same thing here. Now, here's the big theological question. Since he described them as a brood of vipers who are always resisting God, who are not only not going in but won't let anybody else in, who when they make a convert make them the child of hell, and he says that they are unwilling, is he extolling their free will at that point? Or is he telling them how guilty they really are because they are incapable of doing anything except the wrong thing? I mean, if all you can do is be unwilling, your will is not free. Your will is bound to only doing the things that oppose God. And you can't do anything but that. Stephen says the same thing when he's being stoned. He says to the leaders in Jerusalem, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And our Arminian friends pounce on that and say, see, he just said you, you resist the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is resistible. But the truth of the matter is, if all you're capable of doing always is resisting, then you're not capable of accepting. Your will is bound to the wrong thing. Same language here. How often have I said by my prophets, that it is my desire, it is my purpose to gather Israel together. And now here I am, the king of Israel. I'm on the planet. I am the son of David. Your children have just sung about me as I came into the city. I am the very one who is going to gather national Israel. I am the son of David who is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and I am going to rule over the 12 tribes, and all the nations of the earth are going to flow to Jerusalem when I'm sitting on my throne, and I'm the king of Israel. Israel and how often I would have fulfilled the very thing that God has promised and gathered all your children just like the prophet said but you you leaders in Jerusalem you brood of vipers you are always unwilling for that to happen and that makes you guilty that's what that verse is about and as you brought it before that it usually is quoted you know how I wanted to gather you yeah but you were not you're right oftentimes it is misquoted by the Arminians how often I want to gather you but it's gather your children and that word children is so vitally important because it is the children of Israel Jesus isn't saying anything new here he's saying what the prophets have always said and it is something by the way he's still going to do but he didn't do it this time he didn't do it in his first incarnation because he came to the planet to die and raise again he's coming back to establish his authority. So, behold, here's what's going to happen. Verse 38, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What house? 
the house of Israel. How often have we seen that language? This morning for our scripture reading, Tom read the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 that began with, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Right now, the ruling leadership in England is the house of Windsor. Prior to that, it was the house of Tudor. Do you see how the word house is being used? It means those people that you rule over who collectively are part of your house, your gathering, your people group. And he says to these leaders in Jerusalem, behold, because you've resisted me while I was here, which you were sovereignly ordained to do, but because you've resisted me, your house, the very thing you're so afraid of losing, the very power and authority that you don't want, you're willing to kill me to keep, I'm taking that all away from you. I'm stripping that away from you, and your house is going to be left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That is the third time or maybe even the fourth time now that Jesus has directly quoted from Psalm 118. Very important psalm. Through these last couple of chapters, it's come up several times, but this time he puts that cap on it. At some point, Israel is going to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At some point, national Israel is going to recognize their Savior. And he says, you're not going to see me again until you say that. Right now, you're rejecting me. Right now, you're killing me. By the way, after his resurrection, and this fascinates me because if it was me, if it was me, if people beat me up and plucked my beard out and spit on me and called me names and sliced my back open and crown of thorns and nailed me to a piece of wood and then to make sure I was dead, put a spear through my side. If three days later I was up again, I'm going right to those people. I'm going straight to their house. I'm, hello, it's me. That's, that's what I would do. But instead what we read is that Jesus revealed himself to the people that God gave him. And he didn't go reveal himself to the leaders. Why? Because he said, you don't get to see me anymore until you admit who I am. When you admit who I am, then you get to see me. Turn to the book of Zechariah. We were just talking about Zechariah a minute ago. Turn to Zechariah 12 for a moment and we'll, we'll finish up the morning. Zechariah 12. By the way, he is one of those prophets that Jesus validates. These are good, valid prophecies that have to come true. Zechariah has a very good batting average going. In chapter 12, he talks about Jerusalem being attacked. Chapter 12, verse 1, this is the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays out the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling or trembling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So he talks about this time when there's going to be a final conflagration that's going to center around Jerusalem. 
Look at verse 8. And in that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David. These are the people in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem who he said are going to be like David, even though they were originally feeble, they're going to be strong like David. They're going to have a heart like David. And the house of David is going to be like God. Why? Because I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Oh, well, that, that sounds rather like salvation to me. And notice it is a national salvation of a group of people. So that when he does that, the result will be so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Notice that Zechariah is writing that hundreds of years before Jesus was on the planet. And yet he accurately prophesied that the Messiah has to be pierced. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning in Hadadrimon in the valley of Megiddo, the Megiddo plain. That's the Armageddon. And in that day, the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the wife of the Shimeites by themselves, and the wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. There's going to be this tremendous repentance, national repentance, national mourning, when they recognize that this is the very Messiah, the pierced one, the one that they killed, who is going to return, and God is going to give them the spirit of grace and the spirit of supplication, and they're going to come to God in humility. Okay, that all has to happen. This is all predicted. This is why Jesus could say to the leaders in Jerusalem, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. The day is coming when Israel is going to recognize their Savior, when they're going to recognize their Messiah. And after a time of supplication, after a time of mourning, after a time of national repentance, God is going to establish them as the great kingdom that Every prophet has prophesied as their future. That all has to happen. So then, since their house is going to be left desolate to them, Matthew 24 is going to begin with Jesus saying, you see this temple? Actually, they're going to say, see the temple? And he's going to say, not one stone of this is going to be left standing. Because their house is going to be left desolate. And not only is he going to destroy their leadership, he's going to destroy the very temple where all of that worship happens as the old covenant transitions to the new. That's where we'll start next week. Got it? So finally, we did it. Finally, next week, Matthew 24. Woo! I know you're all really happy and excited. 
and uh, we'll take our time and get through it. I think it was Micah who asked me a couple weeks ago, he said, how much detail are you going to go into on the way through Matthew 24? And I said, just the really pertinent stuff. Because last time we did eschatology, I don't know, 100 and something weeks. So we're not, we're not going to dig into all the uh, tangential things, but we will dig into everything that is uh, underpinning the things that Jesus says in Matthew 24. And that means we've got to spend some time in Daniel, and we've got to spend some time in a couple of the other prophets, because Jesus himself is going to reference Daniel. So we have to look at those things to understand it. But that's what we'll do next week. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.